0: Demons of the Sea by William Hope Hodgson, 1923 Come out on deck and have a look, Darkie, Jepson cried, rushing into the half-deck. The old man says there's been a submarine earthquake and the sea's all bubbling and muddy. Obeying the summons of Jepson's excited tone, I followed him out. It was as he said, the everlasting blue of the ocean was mottled with splotches of a muddy hue, and at times a large bubble would appear to burst with a loud pop. Aft, the skipper and the three mates could be seen on the poop, peering at the sea through their glasses. As I gazed out over the gently heaving water, far off to windward, something was hove up in the evening air. It appeared to be a mass of seaweed, but fell back into the water with a sullen plunge as though it were something more substantial. Immediately after this strange occurrence, the sun set with tropical swiftness, and in the brief afterglow, things assumed a strange unreality. The crew were all below, no one but the mate and the helmsman remaining on the poop away forward on the top-gallant forecastle, head the dim figure of the man on lookout could be seen, leaning against the forestay. No sound was heard, save the occasional jingle of a Jane sheet, of the flog of the steering gear, as a small swell passed under our counter. Presently the mate's voice broke in silence, and, looking up, I saw that the old man had come on deck and was talking with him. From the few stray words that could be overheard, I knew they were talking of the strange happenings of the day. Shortly after sunset, the wind, which had been fresh during the day, died down, and with its passing, the air grew oppressively hot. Not long after two bells, the mate sung out for me and ordered me to fill a bucket from overside and bring it to him. When I had carried out his instructions, he placed a thermometer in the bucket. "'Just as I thought,' he muttered, removing the instrument and showing it to the skipper. Ninety-nine 9 degrees. Why, the sea's hot enough to make tea with.' "'Hope it doesn't get any hotter,' growled the latter. "'If it does, we shall all be boiled alive.' At a sign from the mate, I emptied the bucket and replaced it in the rack, after which I resumed my former position by the rail. The old man and the mate walked the poop side by side. The air grew hotter as the hours passed, and after a long period of silence broken only by occasional pop of a bursting gas bubble, the moon arose. It shed but a feeble light. However as a heavy mist had arisen from the sea, and through this the moonbeams struggled weakly. The mist, we decided, was due to the excessive heat of the seawater. It was a very wet mist, and we were soon soaked to the skin. Slowly the interminable night wore on, and the sun arose, looking dim and ghostly through the mist that rolled and billowed about the ship, From time to time we took the temperature of the sea, although we found but a slight increase therein. No work was done, and a feeling as of something impending pervaded the ship. The foghorn was kept going constantly as the lookout peered through the wreathing mists. The captain walked the poop in company with the mates, and once the third mate spoke and pointed out into the clouds of fog, All eyes followed his gesture. We saw what was apparently a black line, which seemed to cut the whiteness of the billows. It reminded us of nothing so much as an enormous cobra standing on its tail. As we looked, it vanished. The grouped mates were evidently puzzled. There seemed to be a difference of opinion among them. Presently, as they argued... I heard the second mate's voice. That's all rot, he said. I've seen things in fog before. They've always turned out to be imaginary. The third shook his head and made some reply I could not overhear, but no further comment was made. Going below that afternoon, I got a short sleep, and on coming on deck at eight bells, I found that the steam still held us. If anything, it seemed to be thicker than ever. Hansard, who had been taking the temperatures during my watch below, informed me that the sea was three degrees hotter and that the old man was getting into a rare old state. At three bells, I went forward to have a look over the bows and a chin with Stevenson, whose lookout it was. On gaining the forecastle head, I went to the side and looked down into the water. Stevenson came over and stood beside me. Rum go this, he rumbled. He stood by my side for a time in silence. We seemed to be hypnotized by the gleaming surface of the sea. Suddenly, out of the depths, right before us, there arose a monstrous black face. It was like a frightful caricature of a human countenance. For a moment, we gazed petrified. My blood seemed to suddenly turn to ice water. I was unable to move. With a mighty effort of will, I regained my self-control, and grasping Stevenson's arm, I found I could no more than croak. My powers of speech seemed gone. Look, I gasped, look. Stevenson continued to stare into the sea like a man turned to stone. He seemed to stoop further over as if to examine the thing more closely. "'Lord!' he exclaimed. "'It must be the devil himself!' As though the sound of his voice had broken a spell, the thing disappeared. My companion looked at me while I rubbed my eyes thinking that I had been asleep and that the awful vision had been a frightful nightmare." One look at my friend, however, disabused me of any such thought. His face wore a puzzled expression. "'Better go aft and tell the old man,' he faltered. I nodded and left the forecastle head, making my way aft, like one in a trance. The skipper and the mate were standing at the break of the poop, and running up the ladder, I told them what we had seen. "'Bosh!' sneered the old man." You've been looking at your own ugly reflection in the water. Nevertheless, in spite of his ridicule, he questioned me closely. Finally, he ordered the mate forward to see if he could see anything. The latter, however, returned in a few moments to report that nothing unusual could be seen. Four bells were struck, and we were relieved for tea. Coming on deck afterward, I found the men clustered together forward, the sole topic of the conversation with them was the thing that Stevenson and I had seen. "'I suppose, Darky, it couldn't have been a reflection by any chance, could it?' one of the older men asked. "'Ask Stevenson,' I replied, as I made way, way aft. "'At eight bells, my watch came on deck again "'to find that nothing further had developed.' But about an hour before midnight, the mate, thinking to have a smoke, sent me to his room for a box of matches with which to light his pipe. It took me no time to clatter down the brass-treaded ladder and back to the poop, where I handed him the desired article. Taking the box, he removed a match and struck it on the heel of his boot. As he did so, far out in the night, a muffled screaming arose. "'Then came a clamor as of hoarse braying, "'like an asp but considerably deeper, "'and with a horribly suggestive human note running through it. "'Good God, did you hear that, darky?" "'asked the mate in awed tones. "'Yes, sir,' I replied, listening "'and scarcely noticing his question. "'For a repetition of the strange sounds,' Suddenly the frightful bellowing broke out afresh. The mate's pipe fell to the deck with a clatter. "'Run forward,' he cried. "'Quick now and see if you can see anything.' With my heart in my mouth and pulses pounding madly, I raced forward. The watch were all up on the forecastle head, clustered around the lookout. Each man was talking and gesticulating wildly. They became silent, "'and turned questioning glances toward me "'as I shouldered my way among them. "'Have you seen anything?' I cried. "'Before I could receive an answer, "'a repetition of the horrid sounds broke out again, "'profaning the night with their horror. "'They seemed to have definite direction now, "'in spite of the fog that enveloped us. "'Undoubtedly, too, they were nearer. Pausing a moment, To make sure of their bearing, I hastened aft and reported to the mate. I told him that nothing could be seen, but that the sounds apparently came from right ahead of us. On hearing this, he ordered the man at the wheel to let the ship's head come off a couple of points. A moment later, a shrill screaming tore its way through the night, following by the hoarse braying sounds once more. "'It's close on the starboard bow!' exclaimed the mate "'as he beckoned the helmsman to let her head come off a little more. "'Then singing out for the watch, he ran forward, "'slacking the lee braces on the way. "'When he had the yards trimmed to his satisfaction on the new course, "'he returned to the poop and hung far out over the rail, "'listening intently. "'Moments passed that seemed like hours.' yet the silence remained unbroken. Suddenly the sounds began again, and so close that it seemed as though they must be right aboard of us. At this time I noticed a strange booming note mingled with the brays, and once or twice there came a sound that can only be described as a sort of Then would come a wheezy whistling for all the world like an asthmatic person breathing. All this while, the moon shone wanly through the steam, which seemed to me to be somewhat thinner. Once the mate gripped me by the shoulder as the noises rose and fell again. They now seemed to be coming from a point broad on our beam. Every eye on the ship was straining into the mist, but with no result. Suddenly one of the men cried out as something long and black slid past us into the fog astern. From it there rose four indistinct and ghostly towers, which resolved themselves into spars and ropes and sails. "'A ship! It's a ship!' we cried excitedly. I turned to Mr. Gray. He, too, had seen something and was staring aft into the wake. So ghost-like, unreal and fleeting had been our glimpse of the stranger.' "'that we were not sure that we had seen an honest material ship, "'but thought we had been vouchsafed a vision "'from some phantom vessel like the Flying Dutchman. "'Our sails gave a sudden flap, "'the clue irons flogging the bulwarks with the hollow thumps. "'The mate glanced aloft. "'Winds dropping,' he growled savagely, "'we shall never get out of this infernal place at this gate.' Gradually, the wind fell until it was a flat calm. No sound broke. The death-like silence save the rapid patter of the reef points as she gently rose and fell on the light swell. Hours passed, and the watch was relieved and I went below. At seven bells we were called again, and as I went along the deck to the galley... I noticed that the fog seemed thinner and the air cooler. When eight bells were struck, I relieved Hansard at coiling down the ropes. From him I learned that the steam had begun to clear about four bells and that the temperature of the sea had fallen ten degrees. In spite of the thinning mist, it was not until about a half an hour later that we were able to get a glimpse of the surrounding sea. It was still mottled with dark patches, and the bubbling and popping had ceased. As much of the surface of the ocean as could be seen had a peculiarly desolate aspect. Occasionally a wisp of steam would float up from the nearer sea and roll undulating across its silent surface until lost in the vagueness that still held the hidden horizon. Here and there columns of steam rose up in pillars, which gave me the impression that the sea was hot in places. Crossing to the starboard side and looking over, I found that conditions were similar to those to port. The desolate aspect of the sea filled me with an idea of chilliness, although the air was quite warm and muggy. From the break of the poop, the mate called to get me his glasses. When I had done this, He took them from me and walked to the taffrail. Here he stood for some moments, polishing them with his handkerchief. After a moment he raised them to his eyes and peered long and intently into the mist stern. I stood for some time, staring at the point on which the mate had focused his glasses. Presently, something shadowy grew upon my vision. Steadily watching it, I distinctly saw the outlines of a ship take form in the fog. See, I cried, but even as I spoke, a lifting wraith of mist disclosed to view a great four-masted bark lying becalmed with all sails set, within a few hundred yards of our stern. As though a curtain had been raised and then allowed to fall, the fog once more settled down, hiding the strange bark from our sight. The mate was all excitement, striding with quick jerky steps up and down the poop, stopping every few moments to peer through his glasses at the point where the foremaster had disappeared in the fog. Gradually, as the mist dispersed again, the vessel could be seen more plainly, and it was then that we got an inkling of the cause of the dreadful noises during the night. For some time, the mate watched her silently, And as he watched, the conviction grew upon me that, in spite of the mist, I could detect some sort of movement on board of her. After some time had passed, the doubt became a certainty, and I could also see a sort of splashing in the water alongside of her. Suddenly, the mate put his glasses on top of the wheel box and told me to bring him the speaking trumpet. Running to the companionway, I secured the trumpet and was back at his side. The mate raised it to his lips, and taking a deep breath, sent a hail across the water that should have awakened the dead. We waited tensely for a reply. A moment later, a deep, hollow mutter came from the bark. Higher and louder it swelled until we realized that we were listening to the same sounds we had heard the night before the mate stood aghast at his answer to his hail. In a voice barely more than a hushed whisper, he bade me call the old man. Attracted by the mate's hail and its unearthly reply, the watch had all come aft and were clustered in the mizzen rigging in order to see better. After calling the captain, I returned to the poop, where I found the second and third mates talking with the chief, All were engaged in trying to pierce the clouds of mist that half hid our strange consort and to arrive at some explanation of the strange phenomenon of the past few hours. A moment later, the captain appeared, carrying his telescope. The mate gave him a brief account of the state of affairs and handed him the trumpet. Giving me the telescope to hold, the captain hailed the shadowy bark. Breathlessly we all listened, when again, in answer to the old man's hail, the frightful sound arose in the still morning air. The skipper lowered the trumpet and stood with an expression of astonished horror on his face. Lord, he explained, what an ungodly row! At this, the third, who had been gazing through his binoculars, broke the silence. Look! He ejaculated, "'There's a breeze coming up astern.' At his words, the captain looked up quickly, and we all watched the ruffling water. "'That packet yonder is bringing the breeze with her,' said the skipper. "'She'll be alongside in half an hour.' Some moments passed, and the bank of fog had come to within a hundred yards of our taffrail the strange vessel could be distinctly seen just inside the fringe of the driving mist-wreaths. After a short puff, the wind died completely. But as we stared with hypnotic fascination, the water astern of the stranger ruffled again with a fresh cat's paw. Seemingly with the flapping of her sails, she drew slowly up to us. As the leaden seconds passed, the big foremaster approached us steadily. The light air had now reached us, and with a lazy lift of our sails, we too began to forge slowly through that weird sea. The bark was now within fifty yards of our stern, and she was steadily drawing nearer, seeming to be able to outfoot us with ease. As she came on the luff sharply and came up, into the wind with her weather, leeches shaking. I looked toward her poop, thinking to discern the figure of the man at the wheel, but the mist coiled around her quarter and objects on the after end of her became indistinguishable. With a rattle of chain sheets on her iron yard, she filled away again. We, meanwhile, had gone ahead, but... It was soon evident that she was the better sailor, for she came up to us hand over fist. The wind rapidly freshened and the mist began to drift away before it, so that each moment her spars and cordage became more plainly visible. The skipper and the mates were watching her intently when an almost simultaneous exclamation of fear broke from them. "'My God!' and well they might show signs of fear, for crawling about the bark's deck were the most horrible creatures I had ever seen. In spite of their unearthly strangers, there was something vaguely familiar about them. Then it came to me that the face that Stevenson and I had seen during the night belonged to one of them. Their bodies had something of the shape of a seal's, but of a dead, unhealthy white the lower part of the body ended in a sort of double-curved tail on which they appeared to be able to shuffle about. In place of arms, they had two long, snaky feelers, at the end of which were two very human-like hands, which were equipped with talons instead of nails. Fearsome indeed were these parodies of human beings. Their faces, which like their tentacles were black, with the most grotesquely human things about them, and the upper jaw closed into the lower, after the manner of the jaws of an octopus. I have seen men among certain tribes of natives who had faces uncommonly like theirs, but yet no native I had ever seen could have given me the extraordinary feeling of horror and revulsion I experienced toward these brutal-looking creatures." "'What devilish beasts!' burst out the captain in disgust. With this remark, he turned to the mates, and as he did so, the expressions on their faces told me that they had all realized what the presence of these bestial-looking brutes meant. If, as was doubtless the case, these creatures had boarded the bark and destroyed her crew, what would prevent them from doing the same with us? We were a smaller ship and had a smaller crew.' and the more I thought of it, the less I liked it. We could see now the name on the bark's bow, with the naked eye. It read Scottish Heath. While on her boats, we could see the name bracketed with Glasgow, showing that she hailed from that port. It was a remarkable coincidence that she should have a slant from just the quarter in which yards were trimmed, as before we saw her... She must have been drifting around with everything aback. But now, in this light air, she was able to run along beside us and with no one at her helm. But steering herself, she was. And although at times she yawed wildly, she never got herself aback. As we gazed at her, we noticed a sudden movement on board of her, and several of the creatures slid into the water. "'See, see, they've spotted us! They're coming for us!' cried the mate wildly. "'It was only too true. Scores of them were sliding into the sea, "'letting themselves down by means of their long tentacles. "'On they came, slipping by scores and hundreds into the water, "'and swimming toward us in droves. "'The ship was making about three knots.' Otherwise, they would have caught us in a very few minutes. But they persevered, gaining slowly but surely, and drawing nearer and nearer. The long tentacle-like arms rose out of the sea in hundreds, and the foremost ones were already within a score of yards of the ship before the old man bethought himself to shout to the mates to fetch up the half-dozen cutlasses that comprised the ship's armory. Then turning to me, he ordered me to go down to his cabin and bring up the two revolvers out of the top drawer of the chart table, also a box of cartridges that were there. When I returned with the weapons, he loaded them and handed one to the mate. Meanwhile, the pursuing creatures were coming steadily nearer, and soon half a dozen of the leaders were directly under our counter, Immediately, the captain leaned over the rail and emptied his pistol into him, but without any apparent effect. He must have realized how puny and ineffectual his efforts were, for he did not reload his weapon. When I returned with the weapons, he loaded them and handed one to the mate. Meanwhile, the pursuing creatures were coming steadily nearer, and soon half a dozen of the leaders were directly under our counter. Immediately the captain leaned over the rail and emptied his pistol into them, but without any apparent effect. He must have realized how puny and ineffectual his efforts were, for he did not reload his weapon. Some dozens of the brutes had reached us, and as they did so their tentacles rose into the air and caught our rail. I heard the third mate scream suddenly, and turning I saw him dragged quickly to the rail, with the tentacle wrapped completely around him. "'Snatching a cutlass, the second mate hacked off the tentacle where it joined the body. "'A gout of blood splashed into the third mate's face, and he fell to the deck. "'A dozen more of those arms rose and wavered in the air, "'but they now seemed some yards astern of us. "'A rapidly widening patch of clear water appeared between us "'and the foremost of our pursuers, and we raised a wild shout of joy. "'The cause was soon apparent.' for a fine fair wind had sprung up, and with the increase in its force the Scottish heath had gotten herself aback, while we were rapidly leaving the monsters behind us. The third mate arose to his feet with a dazed look. As he did so, something fell to the deck. I picked it up, and I found that it was the severed portion of the tentacle of the third late's adversary. With a grimace of disgust, I tossed it into the sea, as I needed no reminder of that awful experience. Three weeks later, we anchored in San Francisco. There, the captain made a full report of the affair to the authorities, with the result that a gunboat was dispatched to investigate. Six weeks later, she returned to report that she had been unable to find any signs, either of the ship herself or of the fearful creatures that had attacked her. And since then, nothing, as far as I know, has ever been heard of the four-masted bark Scottish heath, last seen by us in the possession of creatures that might rightly be called demons of the sea. Whether she still floats, occupied by her hellish crew, or whether some storm has sent her to her last resting place beneath the waves is surely a matter of conjecture. Perchance on some dark, fog-bound night a ship in that wilderness of waters may hear cries and sounds beyond those of the wailing of the winds, and then let them look to it, for it may be that the demons of the sea are near them.